Section 1 of Tales of Old Japan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Avai in March 2011. Tales of Old Japan by Lord Reedsdale. Section 1 The Forty Seven Ronins. Part 1. The books which have been written of late years about Japan have either been compiled from official records or have contained the sketchy impressions of passing travellers. Of the inner life of the Japanese, the world at large knows but little. Their religion, their superstitions, their ways of thought, the hidden springs by which they move, all these are as yet mysteries. Nor is this to be wondered at. The first Western man who came in contact with Japan, I am speaking not of the old Dutch and Portuguese traders and priests, but of the diplomats and merchants of eleven years ago, met with a cold reception. Above all things, the native government threw obstacles in the way of any inquiry into their language, literature, and history. The fact was that the tycoon's government, with whom alone, so long as the Mikado remained in seclusion in his sacred capital at Kyoto, any relations were maintained, knew that the imperial purple with which they sought to invest their chief must quickly fade before the strong sunlight which would be brought upon it so soon as there should be European linguists capable of examining their books and records. No opportunity was lost of throwing dust in the eyes of the newcomers, whom, even in the most trifling details, it was the official policy to lead astray. Now, however, there is no cause for concealment. The roi feignant has shaken off his sloth and his mère du palais together, and an intelligible government, which need not fear scrutiny from abroad, is the result. The records of the country being but so many proofs of the Mikado's title to power, there is no reason for keeping up any show of mystery. The path of inquiry is open to all, and although there is yet much to be learned, some knowledge has been attained in which it may interest those who stay at home to share. The recent revolution in Japan has wrought changes, social as well as political, and it may be that, when in addition to the advance which has already been made, railways and telegraphs shall have connected the principal points of the land of sunrise, the old Japanese, such as he was and had been for centuries when we found him even eleven short years ago, will have become extinct. It has appeared to me that no better means could be chosen of preserving a record of a curious and fast disappearing civilization than the translation of some of the most interesting national legends and histories, together with other specimens of literature bearing upon the same subject. Thus the Japanese may tell their own tale, their translator only adding here and there a few words of heading or tag to a chapter where an explanation or amplification may seem necessary. I fear that the long and hard names will often make my tales tedious reading, but I believe that those who will bear with the difficulty will learn more of the character of the Japanese people than by skimming over descriptions of travel and adventure, however brilliant. The lord and his retainer, the warrior and the priest, the humble artisan and the despised Ita or pariah, each in his turn will become a leading character in my budget of stories, 
and it is out of the mouths of these personages that I hope to show forth a tolerably complete picture of Japanese society. Having said so much by way of preface, I beg my readers to fancy themselves wafted away to the shores of the Bay of Yedo, a fair smiling landscape, gentle slopes crested by a dark fringe of pines and firs lead down to the sea, the quaint eaves of many a temple and holy shrine peep out here and there from the groves, the bay itself is studded with picturesque fisher-craft, the torches of which shine by night like glow-worms among the outlying forts. Far away to the west loom the goblin-haunted heights of Oyama, and beyond the twin hills of the Hakone Pass, Fujiyama, the peerless mountain, solitary and grand, stands in the centre of the plain from which it sprang vomiting flames twenty-one centuries ago. Footnote According to Japanese tradition, in the fifth year of the Emperor Korei, 286 BC, the earth opened in the province of Omi, near Kyoto, and Lake Biwa, 60 miles long by about 18 broad, was formed in the shape of a biwa, or four-stringed lute, from which it takes its name. At the same time, to compensate for the depression of the earth, but at a distance of over 300 miles from the lake, rose Fujiyama, the last eruption of which was in the year 1707. The great last earthquake of Yedo took place about 15 years ago. 20,000 souls are said to have perished in it, and the dead were carried away and buried by cartloads. Many persons, trying to escape from their falling and burning houses, were caught in great clefts which yawned suddenly in the earth, and as suddenly closed upon the victims, crushing them to death. For several days heavy shocks continued to be felt, and the people camped out, not daring to return to such houses as had been spared, nor to build up those which lay in ruins. End footnote. For a hundred and sixty years the huge mountain has been at peace, but the frequent earthquakes still tell of hidden fires, and none can say when the red-hot stones and ashes may once more fall like rain over five provinces. In the midst of a nest of venerable trees in Takanawa, a suburb of Yedo, is hidden Sengakuji, or the Spring Hill Temple, renowned throughout the length and breadth of the land for its cemetery, which contains the graves of the forty-seven. Ronins, famous in Japanese history, heroes of Japanese drama, the tale of whose deeds I am about to transcribe. Footnote. The word Ronin means literally a wave-man. One is tossed about hither and thither as a wave of the sea. It is used to designate persons of gentle blood entitled to bear arms, who, having become separated from their feudal lords by their own act, or by dismissal, or by fate, wander about the country in the capacity of somewhat disreputable knights-errant, without ostensible means of living, in some cases offering themselves for hire to new masters, in others supporting themselves by pillage, or who, falling a grade in the social scale, go into trade and become simple wardsmen. Sometimes it happens that for political reasons a man will become ronin, in order that his lord may not be implicated in some deed of blood in which he is about to engage. Sometimes, also, men become ronins and leave their native place for a while, until some scrape in which they have become entangled shall have blown over, after which they return to their former allegiance. 
Nowadays, it is not unusual for men to become ronins for a time and engage themselves in the service of foreigners at the open ports, even in manual capacities, in the hope that they may pick up something of the language and lore of Western folks. I know instances of men of considerable position who have adopted this course in their zeal for education. End footnote. On the left-hand side of the main court of the temple is a chapel, in which, surmounted by a gilt figure of Kuan Yin, the goddess of mercy, are enshrined the images of the forty-seven men, and of the master whom they loved so well. The statues are carved in wood, the faces coloured, and the dresses richly lacquered, as works of art they have great merit, the action of the heroes, each armed with his favourite weapon, being wonderfully lifelike and spirited some are venerable men with thin grey hair one is seventy-seven years old others are mere boys of sixteen close by the chapel at the side of a path leading up the hill is a little well of pure water fenced in and adorned with a tiny fernery over which is an inscription setting forth that this is the well in which the head was washed you must not wash your hands or your feet here a little further on is a stall at which a poor old man earns a pittance by selling books, pictures, and medals, commemorating the loyalty of the forty-seven, and higher up yet, shaded by a grove of stately trees, is a neat enclosure, kept up, as a signboard announces, by voluntary contributions, round which are ranged forty-eight little tombstones, each decked with evergreens, each with its tribute of water and incense for the comfort of the departed spirit. There were forty-seven ronins, there are forty-eight tombstones, and the story of the forty-eighth is truly characteristic of Japanese ideas of honour. Almost touching the rail of the graveyard is a more imposing monument, under which lies buried the Lord, whose death his followers piously avenged. And now for the story. At the beginning of the 18th century there lived a daimyo called Asano Takumi no Kami, the lord of the castle of Akko, in the province of Harima. Now it happened that an imperial ambassador from the court of the Mikado having been sent to the shogun at Yedo, Takumi no Kami and another noble called Kamei-sama were appointed to receive and feast the envoy, and a high official named Kira Kotsuke no Suke was named to teach them the proper ceremonies to be observed upon the occasion. Footnote. The full title of the tycoon was Sei Tai Shogun, Barbarian Repressing Commander-in-Chief. The style Tycoon, Great Prince, was borrowed in order to convey the idea of sovereignty to foreigners at the time of the conclusion of the treaties. The envoys sent by the Mikado from Kyoto to communicate to the shogun the will of his sovereign were received with imperial honours, and the duty of entertaining them was confined to nobles of rank. The title Sai-i-tai shogun was first borne by Minamoto no Yoritomo in the seventh month of the year Anno Domini 1192. End footnote. The two nobles were accordingly forced to go daily to the castle to listen to the instructions of Kotsuke no Suke. But this Kotsuke no Suke was a man greedy of money, 
and as he deemed that the presents which the two daimyos according to time-honoured custom had brought him in return for his instruction were mean and unworthy he conceived a great hatred against them and took no pains in teaching them but to the contrary rather sought to make laughing-stocks of them takumi no kami restrained by a stern sense of duty bore his insults with patience but kamei-sama who had less control over his temper was violently incensed and determined to kill kotsuke no suke one night when his duties at the castle were ended kamei-sama returned to his own palace and having summoned his counsellors to a secret conference said to them counsellor literary elder the counsellors of daimyos were of two classes the karo or elder a hereditary office held by cadets of the prince's family and the yonin or man of business who were selected on account of his merits these counsellors play no mean part in japanese history End footnote. kotsuke no suke has insulted takumi no kami and myself during our service in attendance on the imperial envoy this is against all decency and i was minded to kill him on the spot but i bethought me that if i did such a deed within the precincts of the castle not only would my own life be forfeit but my family and vassals would be ruined so i stayed my hand still the life of such a wretch is a sorrow to the people and to-morrow when i go to court i will slay him my mind is made up and i will listen to no remonstrance and as he spoke his face became livid with rage now one of kamei-sama's counsellors was a man of great judgment and when he saw from his lord's manner that remonstrance would be useless he said your lordship's words are law your servant will make all preparations accordingly and to-morrow when your lordship goes to court if this kotsuke no suke should again be insolent let him die the death and his lord was pleased at his speech and waited with impatience for the day to break that he might return to court and kill his enemy but the counsellor went home and was sorely troubled and thought anxiously about what his prince had said and as he reflected it occurred to him that since kotsuke no suke had the reputation of being a miser he would certainly be open to a bribe and that it was better to pay any sum no matter how great than that his lord and his house should be ruined so he collected all the money he could and giving it to his servants to carry rode off in the night to kotsuke no suke's place and said to his retainers my master who is now in attendance upon the imperial envoy owes much thanks to my lord kotsuke no suke who has been at so great pains to teach him the proper ceremonies to be observed during the reception of the imperial envoy this is but a shabby present which he has sent by me but he hopes that his lordship will condescend to accept it and commends himself to his lordship's favour and with these words he produced a thousand ounces of silver for kotsuke no suke and a hundred ounces to be distributed among his retainers when the latter saw the money their eyes sparkled with pleasure and they were profuse in their thanks and begging the counsellor to wait a little they went and told their master of the lordly present which had arrived with a polite message from kamei-sama 
Kotsuke no Suke, in eager delight, sent for the counsellor into an inner chamber, and, after thanking him, promised on the morrow to instruct his master carefully in all the different points of etiquette. So the counsellor, seeing the miser's glee, rejoiced at the success of his plan, and having taken his leave, returned home in high spirits. But Kamei-sama, little thinking of how his vassal had propitiated his enemy, lay brooding over his vengeance, and on the following morning at daybreak went to court in solemn procession. When Kotsuke no Suke met him, his manner had completely changed, and nothing could exceed his courtesy. "'You have come early to court this morning, my lord Kame,' said he. "'I cannot sufficiently admire your zeal. I shall have the honour to call your attention to several points of etiquette to-day.' I must beg your lordship to excuse my previous conduct, which must have seemed very rude, but I am naturally of a cross-grained disposition, so I pray you to forgive me. And as he kept on humbling himself and making fair speeches, the heart of Kame-sama was gradually softened, and he renounced his intention of killing him. Thus by the cleverness of his counsellor was Kame-sama, with all his house, saved from ruin. Shortly after this, Takumi no Kami, who had sent no present, arrived at the castle, and Kotsuke no Suke turned him into ridicule even more than before, provoking him with sneers and covered insults. But Takumi no Kami affected to ignore all this, and submitted himself patiently to Kotsuke no Suke's orders. This conduct, so far from producing a good effect, only made Kotsuke no Suke despise him the more, until at last he said haughtily, here, my lord of Takumi, the ribbon of my sock has become untied. Be so good as to tie it up for me. Takumi no Kami, although burning with rage at the affront, still thought that as he was on duty he was bound to obey, and tied up the ribbon of the sock. Then Kotsuke no Suke, turning from him, petulantly exclaimed, Why, how clumsy you are! You cannot so much as tie up the ribbon of a sock properly. Anyone can see that you are a boor from the country, and know nothing of the manners of Yedo. And with a scornful laugh he moved towards an inner room. But the patience of Takumi no Kami was exhausted. This last insult was more than he could bear. "'Stop a moment, my lord,' cried he. "'Well, what is it?' replied the other. And as he turned round, Takumi no Kami drew his dirk and aimed a blow at his head, but Kotsuke no Suke, being protected by the court cap which he wore, the wound was but a scratch, so he ran away, and Takumi no Kami, pursuing him, tried a second time to cut him down, but missing his aim, struck his dirk into a pillar. At this moment an officer named Kachikawa Yosobe, seeing the affray, rushed up, and holding back the infuriated noble, gave Kotsuke no Suke time to make good his escape. Then there arose a great uproar and confusion, and Takumi no Kami was arrested and disarmed, and confined in one of the apartments of the palace under the care of the censors. A council was held, and the prisoner was given over to the safeguard of a daimyo, called Tamura Ukyo no Daibu, who kept him in close custody in his own house, to the great grief of his wife and of his retainers. And when the deliberations of the council were completed, it was decided that, as he had committed an outrage and attacked another man within the precincts of the palace, he must perform harakiri, that is, commit suicide by disemboweling, 
his goods must be confiscated and his family ruined. Such was the law. So Takumi no Kami performed Harakiri, his castle of Akko was confiscated, and his retainers having become ronins, some of them took service with other daimyos, and others became merchants. Now amongst these retainers was his principal counsellor, a man called Oishi Kuranosuke, who, with forty-six other faithful dependents, formed a league to avenge their master's death by killing Kotsuke no Suke. This Oishi Kuranosuke was absent at the castle of Akko at the time of the affray, which, had he been with his prince, would never have occurred, for being a wise man he would not have failed to propitiate Kotsuke no Suke by sending him suitable presents, while the counsellor who was in attendance on the prince at Yedo was a dullard who neglected his precaution, and so caused the death of his master and the ruin of his house. So Oishi Kuranosuke and his forty-six companions began to lay their plans of vengeance against Kotsuke no Suke, but the latter was so well guarded by a body of men lent to him by a daimyo called Uyesuge-sama, whose daughter he had married, that they saw that the only way of attaining their end would be to throw their enemy off his guard. With this object they separated and disguised themselves, some as carpenters or craftsmen, others as merchants, and their chief, Kuranosuke, went to Kyoto and built a house in the quarter called Yamashina, where he took to frequenting houses of the worst repute and gave himself up to drunkenness and debauchery, as if nothing were further from his mind than revenge. Kotsuke no Suke, in the meanwhile, suspecting that Takumi no Kami's former retainers would be scheming against his life, secretly sent spies to Kyoto and caused a faithful account to be kept of all that Kuranosuke did. The latter, however, determined thoroughly to delude the enemy into a false security, went on leading a dissolute life with harlots and wine-bibbers. One day, as he was returning home drunk from some low hound, he fell down in the street and went to sleep, and all the passers-by laughed him to scorn. It happened that a Satsuma man saw this, and said, Is not this Oishi Kuranosuke, who was a counsellor of Asano Takumi no Kami, and who, not having the heart to avenge his lord, gives himself up to women and wine? See how he lies drunk in the public street, faithless beast, fool and craven, unworthy the name of a samurai. Footnote Samurai, a man belonging to the buke or military class, entitled to bear arms. End footnote. And he trod on Kuranosuke's face as he slept and spat upon him. But when Kotsuke no Suke's spies reported all this at Yedo, he was greatly relieved at the news and felt secure from danger. One day Kuranosuke's wife, who was bitterly grieved to see her husband lead this abandoned life, went to him and said, My lord, you told me at first that your debauchery was but a trick to make your enemy relax in watchfulness. But indeed, indeed, this has gone too far. I pray and beseech you to put some restraint upon yourself. Trouble me not, replied Kuranosuke, for I will not listen to your whining. Since my way of life is displeasing to you, I will divorce you, and you may go about your business, and I will buy some pretty young girl from one of the public houses, and marry her for my pleasure. 
I am sick of the sight of an old woman like you about the house, so get you gone. The sooner, the better. So saying, he flew into a violent rage, and his wife, terror-stricken, pleaded piteously for mercy. Oh, my lord, unsay those terrible words. I have been your faithful wife for twenty years, and have borne you three children. In sickness and in sorrow I have been with you. You cannot be so cruel as to turn me out of doors now. Have pity, have pity. Cease this useless wailing. My mind is made up, and you must go. And as the children are in my way also, you are welcome to take them with you. When she heard her husband speak thus, in her grief she sought her eldest son, Oishi Chikara, and begged him to plead for her, and pray that she might be pardoned. But nothing would turn Kuranosuke from his purpose, so his wife was sent away with the two younger children and went back to her native place. But Oishi Chikara remained with his father. The spies communicated all this without fail to Kotsuke no Suke, and he, when he heard how Kuranosuke, having turned his wife and children out of doors and bought a concubine, was grovelling in a life of drunkenness and lust, began to think that he had no longer anything to fear from the retainers of Takumi no Kami, who must be cowards without the courage to avenge their lord. So, by degrees, he began to keep a less strict watch, and sent back half of the guard which had been lent to him by his father-in-law, Uyesugi-sama. Little did he know how he was falling into the trap laid for him by Kuranosuke, who, in his zeal to slay his lord's enemy, thought nothing of divorcing his wife and sending away his children. Admirable and faithful man! In this way Kuranosuke continued to throw dust in the eyes of his foe, by persisting in his apparently shameless conduct, but his associates all went to Yedo, and, having in their several capacities as workmen and peddlers contrived to gain access to Kotsuke no Suke's house, made themselves familiar with the plan of the building and the arrangement of the different rooms, and ascertained the character of the inmates, who were brave and loyal men, and who were cowards, Upon all of which matters they sent regular reports to Kuranosuke. And when at last it became evident from the letters which arrived from Yedo that Kotsuke no Suke was thoroughly off his guard, Kuranosuke rejoiced that the day of vengeance was at hand, and, having appointed a trysting place at Yedo, he fled secretly from Kyoto, eluding the vigilance of his enemy's spies. Then the forty-seven men, having laid all their plans, bided their time patiently. It was now midwinter, the twelfth month of the year, and the cold was bitter. One night, during a heavy fall of snow, when the whole world was hushed, and peaceful men were stretched in sleep upon the mats, the Ronins determined that no more favourable opportunity could occur for carrying out their purpose. So they took counsel together, and, having divided their band into two parties, assigned to each man his post. One band, led by Oishi Kuranosuke, was to attack the front gate, and the other, under his son Oishi Chikara, was to attack the postern of Kotsuke no Suke's house. But as Chikara was only sixteen years of age, Yoshida Chiusayemon was appointed to act as his guardian. Further it was arranged that a drum, beaten at the order of Kuranosuke, should be the signal for the simultaneous attack, 
and that if any one slew Kotsuke no Suke and cut off his head, he should blow a shrill whistle as a signal to his comrades, who would hurry to the spot, and, having identified the head, carry it off to the temple called Senkakuji, and lay it as an offering before the tomb of their dead lord. Then they must report their deed to the government, and await the sentence of death, which would surely be passed upon them. To this the ronins one and all pledged themselves. Midnight was fixed upon as the hour, and the forty-seven comrades, having made all ready for the attack, partook of a last farewell feast together, for on the morrow they must die. Then Oishi Kuranosuke addressed the band and said, Tonight we shall attack our enemy in his palace. His retainers will certainly resist us, and we shall be obliged to kill them. But to slay old men and women and children is a pitiful thing. Therefore, I pray you each one to take great heed, lest you kill a single helpless person. His comrades all applauded this speech, and so they remained, waiting for the hour of midnight to arrive. End of section 1